Bible to, um, to Luke chapter 7. I'm going to kind of begin there this morning. I want to begin with a prayer. Um, but I was, I was up last night and um, was just thinking about uh, kind of a message this morning. And it has to do a little bit with David's class. But talking about prayer and how we think of prayer. The power of prayer. And, and, and maybe what we expect when we ask for uh, this word, um, that miracles. When we ask for uh, a miracle. And um, I was thinking and I texted Brad last night and I said... Um, um, and the, and I was tired, you know, and you just, you just say whatever's on your mind when you're tired. So I said, uh, man, in the end, it's crazy that such galactic and infinite power would manifest itself in such trivial and provincial ways. Um, and Brad responds, oh, you're talking about the way I beat Daniel in ping pong the other day? <laughs> Sorry, Daniel. I had to throw that out there because I laughed hysterically when he, t- he texted me. <laughs> Uh, that, but uh, let's go ahead and open with a prayer. Uh, my God, I just want to come before you, and um, I, I do, I, I, especially in public prayer like this. Um, it's, it's just difficult to pause and, in my own mind, recognize you as the all-powerful God that you are, um, the all-loving, the all-present. Um, in my own weakness, I, I just I struggle to grasp that the way I should. And I just pray, Father, that you would use your word, use this experience, God, and that for someone that's here this morning that desperately needs you, that needs you to act on their behalf, I pray that you would condition our hearts, you condition our minds, that recognize that we live in this word, in this text, and this is not history, this is reality. It's in the name of Christ we come before you. Amen. Um, any, any good book, uh, any good movie has um, plots and, and subplots. Are my slides working today? Are we okay? I'm, I'm not working? That's okay. I don't need slides. We're fine. Um, I had some epic ones for y'all today, but that's okay. That's okay. Um, <laughs> and I was dependent on them today, but that's okay too. Um, but um, it, it, it's true that in, um, in oh man, we're, we're almost set. Um, in any good book, any good movie, there are plots and there are subplots. And that's one thing that's crazy when you're getting into the word. We're going to look at the story of the centurion. And we're going to look at this whole, this whole thing with the centurion. But the truth is, there are massive underlying subplots that are often missed in these stories and in these accounts. I want to go back to Luke chapter 4 here in just a minute. This is something Christ said when he was in his hometown of Nazareth. And he was in the synagogues there. We are set now. Um, he says this, I tell you the truth, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. So he uses these two examples. He says when Elijah, the national hero, right? When Elijah was sent to Israel, he didn't, he didn't serve any of these people, but he went to a widow that wasn't part of Israel. And then he went to a military captain, Naaman, who, who was, was highly honored. This is the, the story of, um, we are professionals. Do not worry. We're, I'm going to get this today. There we go. This is the story of 
of Elijah. And, and keep in mind, this is the, one of the greatest heroes in the nation. In fact, their prophecies, Malachi especially, prophesied a time when Elijah and someone would return and the spirit of Elijah would come back to the people. Elijah, he went and he ministered to, to Naaman the leper. What's important about that story is they never actually meet. They never talk. It all takes place from a distance with Naaman. Um, then you have the, um, the healing of a widow's son. That actually takes place, identical accounts with Elijah and Elisha. It's almost like the same story. Um, when the, a company of 50 men comes three times to, to capture Elijah in, in, in 2 Kings chapter 1, he says, they said, come down here, man of God. And he says, if I'm a man of God, may fire come down from heaven. He just says the word. He just says the word and fire comes down and consumes him and his 50 men. It happens twice. Uh, in 2 Kings 4, uh, you have a company, and, and, and what's crazy is in this account is he breaks them down into 50 men. Obadiah the prophet does. 50 men in different groups. But then Elijah comes. I'm sorry. No, Elisha comes and breaks bread takes and, and, and miraculously multiplies it for the masses. And, and then um, when he calls, when Elijah calls Elisha, do you remember what he's doing? He's on a plow. He's, he's, he's working a plow and he says, come follow me. He just says the word and he burns his equipment. He sacrifices his oxen and he comes and he follows Elisha. Now what's amazing is it's not just that um, these stories are paralleled in the life of Christ, what I want you to catch is they're parallel in a very concise um, period. Right here in just the last, in these chapters, beginning in chapter 7, working through chapter 9, you're going to see the motif of Elijah. It's on purpose. And so before we get into the centurion, what I want you to catch is the subplot, the underlying thing that's going on is he's coming in the spirit of Elijah. Just as Elijah came, to this, um, uh, to this widow, so Jesus is going to come to a widow. Just as Elijah raised her son from the dead, so Jesus is going to raise her son from the dead. Just as, as Elijah went to this military, I mean, there was a, this encounter with this military captain of high honor. They never met, and the healing took place from a distance. The same thing is going to happen there. And I don't think it's a coincidence that Jesus had just said prior to this, he, he acknowledged these two incidents, the widow of Zarephath and Naaman the Syrian. So when we come into chapter 7, that's kind of what I wanted to show you. For some of you that are coming to a sermon and you're like, what does this have to do with me? We're getting to you. For some of y'all that are coming to this sermon that are like, give me something rich, go chew on this one for a while because this will mess you up. This is amazing, this subplot that is happening here um, through this message. So I want to get into what a Roman centurion was, how a Roman centurion uh, was looked at and, and understood uh, in the time of Christ. They always wore this, um, this horizontal crest. Um, it, sometimes they're depicted with a vertical crest, but they were horizontal. And the reason why is because your troops needed to see you. You were on the front lines of battle. As a centurion, um, you, you weren't simply a leader that was in the back telling people what to do. Uh, a centurion's place was on the very front row, on the very front right. So all of you men, you could see you commanded the formations. As a result, man, they were paid highly. These people were extremely wealthy. And the reason why is because they're not going to live very long. Okay, centurions were on rotation. You, you, you were living a life where you were probably going to die. You were the 
key commander, but you were also on the front lines of battle. And so in times of peace, these people had a lot of respect, a lot of clout. They were very wealthy people. They were decorated in medallions. They wore necklaces with heavy, heavy honors on them. And then you, you'll often see them in their breastplates. They'll have plaques um, recognizing their victories. They wore bracelets also. Um, showing how honored they were. And so they are used to, this is my point, they are used to people giving them honor. They expect honor. They expect respect. And this is simply what you would associate with a centurion, a very, very high-level commander um, in, a, in a legion. Now, what I want you to know also before we get into this story is a legion. What is a legion? About 5,200 troops. But these were professional soldiers. So every legionnaire, every one of these soldiers was a wealthy person. Did you know that every single soldier had a personal servant on the battlefield? Every single soldier had their own mule, their own servant, their own team. These were professionals. Josephus and, and, and others talk about how, how the order would go and the servants would follow behind. And so the Roman centurions, who were over 80 to 200 men... These Roman centurions um, had their own servants, and they were known for being brutal to their servants. It's amazing that I was looking up some of the history and, and Tacitus and other people, other historians from the time period, and it's, it's strange that coincidentally that at the very time of Jesus, it talks about an order that the emperor Claudius had to give. He had to give an order to protect servants because of how cruel that the, these centurions were to their servants. Whenever they became weak, whenever they became useless, they, they left them out in the sun. They exposed them. They exposed them on the front lines of battle. They just wanted to do away with them. They were, they were dead weight at this point. And this is something that was happening. And so the emperor actually issued a decree at the time, that's, and a couple of historians mention it, that any one of these servants that is treated this way, if they're found out that the centurion would be charged with murder, and that, um, that that servant from that point on would be free. The reason I'm telling you that is because in the time of Christ, it's documented that these centurions were cruel, extremely cruel to their servants. Um, they carried a staff. It's called the Vitus staff. Um, it, was, it, it was about this length. Um, it was a vine. Um, I don't think that's heavy enough. That doesn't threaten people. People thought I was coming to threaten you today, and I was. Um, but... But if you just imagine this, this is, this is their weapon. This is the weapon they were known for, not a sword. It was a three-foot staff. And the reason this was their weapon is because they weren't a danger to the enemy as, the, as much as they were a danger to who? Their own troops. All right? You don't disobey the centurion. And so they were known for giving simply the word, Sedo Alterum, give me another. And that means after I broke my, my staff across your head, give me another staff. And that's what the servant would go do. Say to him, bring me another staff. I've got work to do. And some of y'all who are in the military are like, yeah, I've been there. I've been there. Okay. This is how centurions were viewed. I want you to feel the cruelty. I want you to fear the, feel the command with the power that they, they, uh, that they had. Uh, let's see. Again, they, they fought on the front lines of battle. Now, here's what blew my mind. There are 10 references to centurions in the New Testament. Luke contains all 10 of them. One of them is in Matthew, but Luke has all 10 of them. 
Remember, he's writing to a Greek. He's writing to Theophilus. And I'm wondering what his angle is, but how about this? All ten references... Oops, let me skip that slide. All ten references to centurions in the New Testament are positive. All of them are positive. I'm just going to give you some of these, some of these examples. A certain centurion servant in this story is healed because of his faith. It says that he valued his servant highly. He loved the Jewish nation and built their synagogue. The centurion that was at the cross said this, Surely this was the Son of God, and he praised God. A centurion, Cornelius, becomes the first Gentile convert and becomes a hero um, in, in the story of the book of Acts in Acts chapter 10. It says this about him. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He was generous to those in need and prayed to God regularly. He was righteous and respected by the Jewish people. This is what the New Testament is saying about centurions. It says this, a centurion served to deliver Paul from a beating in Acts 22. A centurion served to deliver Paul uh, Paul from a Jewish ambush in Acts 23. Two of his centurions were sent with a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to protect Paul's life. 470 soldiers under a centurion were sent out to protect Paul's life. That's Acts 23. A centurion that was to keep Paul under guard gives him freedom to permit his friends to take care of his needs in Acts 24. And finally, a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the Imperial Regiment, shows kindness to Paul. He saved Paul's life from the soldiers that were trying to kill him. That blew my mind. I was like, wow, every single reference to centurions in the New Testament says something positive about them. It says that these were people serving, they, they were serving the people, they were honored among the people. Um, but none more than this centurion in um, Luke chapter 7. I want you to go ahead and open up, and we're just going to kind of begin reading in verse 1 and looking at this, uh, this story from this angle. When Jesus had finished saying all this in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion servant whom his master valued highly was sick and about to die. The first thing you want to recognize about this is he valued What other centurions and other people known for not valuing, he showed value to this person that was nothing. They're disposable servants. And this is a centurion that receives honor from everybody. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue This is the only time I've seen in the New Testament, only one I'm aware of, where somebody has the audacity to come to God or Jesus and say, this man deserves this. And and, and be honest with you, if I'm reading this story for the first time, I'm ready for Jesus to say, what do you mean deserves? What are you using language like deserves for? These people say he deserves this. Uh, because he loves our nation and he built our synagogue, which to me is also crazy because I don't know the history of how how this worked. I know that some Gentile converts um, were allowed to maybe come into the synagogue, but Gentiles were clearly disrespected by Jews. This man honors the Jewish nation by building a synagogue, the foundation of which is still there in Capernaum. And so it goes on, it says, so Jesus went with him. 
He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself. I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. That's why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. Um, man, the story just flips, flipped, flipped, it went a different direction just now. Because everything we've known about centurions is these people are deserving. They're full of honor. Everyone around them respects this. The servants go and he says, this man deserves this. Jesus comes and he says this. The whole reason I sent a delegation, the whole reason I sent people is because I don't deserve to come to you. Man, I thought if I was just reading the story, it's because, man, I don't have time to deal with this. You guys go take care of this. That's not the case at all. I don't deserve this. In fact, don't even come under my roof. I don't deserve you to come here. And how about this? He's not asking for a miracle because he wants to see the brilliance of a miracle. He doesn't even need to be present. I don't need to be there. The reason he's asking for all of this is why? He loves his servant and wants him healed. Now, how, what, a, what a change from what we've seen in the book of Luke so far. When the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are gathering and miracles are done for this reason. Authenticate yourself. Show us, show us, give us a show. Give us something. Here's the difference between the Jews of, of Capernaum and those Gentiles of Capernaum and those of Nazareth. The, the first, um, for kind of a cheesy illustration here, they dialed 911 because they wanted to hear the, see the flashing lights and see the ambulance. Uh, the, the Gentiles are dialing 911 because they love their friend and want him healed. This is the difference between the two groups. The first wants a show. Show us miracles. Let us come to church to see something. I want to see power. I want to see that God's present. I want to, you to authenticate yourself. But here's the centurion is just saying this. Man, I don't care about all that. I'm not into the show. I'm not into all this. But I love my friend and I desperately need you because only you can do this right now. It's the most selfless act. Everything this guy is doing is completely selfless in this request. But then he says this, just say the word. I just need you to say the word and it will be done. Um, that's what was messing with my head last night. And I, sometimes you know how you have thoughts late at night and you're thinking, I, I, I'm not sure how sober these thoughts are. Maybe they, they won't be the same in the morning. But I feel the same way this morning. I was thinking, isn't it crazy that the God of the universe that said one word and spoke light, creation, life into existence? One word. Now, here's my question for you. Did it take more energy? Did it take more effort for God to speak creation into existence for him to part a sea than to heal a man of his leprosy? Did it take any more energy or effort for the other to happen? Now, this, this really messes with my thinking when it comes to prayer. Because I'm thinking, I, you know, that's a facetious question. I, I'm assuming it doesn't take any more effort at all for God to do what we would consider a great miracle than to heal a man of blindness. And here he is, Jesus, in Galilee, in a section of the earth that's not even recognized, in small towns, in clay huts, in rock buildings, opening the eyes of blind men and lepers. And this is the same God that spoke creation into existence and parts seas and stops wars and creates wars. 
and wiped out humanity with a flood and created again. It's that God. And now he's doing these provincial acts of just from house to house and Capernaum. And I'm trying to make sense of this. And I'm trying to make sense of it in my own prayer. Because I realized, wow, this Jesus could just as easily, it's just a nuance in thought, he could have just as easily said, I'm going to heal all paralytics. I'm going to heal all of the blind. I'm going to cure all disease. That act would have been just as easy as opening the eyes of one blind man. And that raises all kinds of questions because you're just like me. First, you're going to ask, well, why not? Why did he say Lazarus come forth when he could have said, come forth? Everyone. Why? And what's the difference? And I think that's a question God also wants to ask of us um, because it's really sent me down a healthy line of thought. And I want to kind of bring this to our personal prayer life. I'm going to do that in just a minute. It says this, um, so Jesus went from with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, um, I'm sorry, I, I, um, oh yeah, here we go. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go, and he goes. This one come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. Um, This man just amazed God. It's only the second time. It's only there are only two times in Scripture Jesus is amazed. One is by the lack of faith of his people and his disciples. It says he was amazed at their lack of faith. And now you have a centurion, and he says this: He was amazed. I'm amazed by what you just comprehended. One, he understood the power of God. But most importantly to me, look how selfless this man is. Look how incredibly selfless this is. He doesn't care to see the miracle. He doesn't care for God to prove anything. He doesn't care about his honors. He doesn't think he deserves anything. He's only praying desperately because he loves and highly values what other people do not value. And I think both of these elements come into play when you talk about what real faith looks like. What honor did you bring into this room today? And I want you to just put it out in front of you. I've got my own. Just put this out kind of an imaginary way in front of you. Your education, your degrees, your credentials, your experience, your status, your wealth, your renown, how others might admire you and view you. How you might admire you and view you. Every medal that you wear, whether you, whether you put a jacket over them in humility or not, all of these medals that you wear, put them out there on the table before God. Everything that you would say, this gives me status. This gives me something before you. And this centurion had it all, and he was used to people building him up. But before God in his heart, he says this, I'm nothing before you, and I desperately need you. And he honors God, and he does not honor himself uh, when the opportunity presents itself. Um, So that's what I wanted to kind of bring before you this morning. What kind of faith is it that amazes Jesus? What kind of faith is it that kind of makes him smile on his people?
And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about this morning. This has been on my mind for a long time, actually, because I'm asked this question a lot. Um, to the point that I had it just saved on my phone so I could copy and paste when people sent me this message through a text. Um, what do I think of miracles today? Um, that question comes up a whole lot, and it gets my eye going a little bit because there's a whole lot of this story that comes into play. First off, I'm going to say a personal note. I'm not a cessationist. A cessationist is someone who believes that miracles no longer occur today. I'm somebody who likes to stick to the definition. Whatever to the debate, isn't it the most frustrating thing when you're in a debate or an argument with somebody and they keep redefining the word so they can win? Um, We've done it with baptism, Church of Christ, a thousand other things. You get slippery with your definitions. I'm going to stick to definition of of a miracle as this. I, I recognize that every breath I breathe is a miracle. Please know that I recognize that. But I'm sticking to this definition of a miracle, something that is beyond natural, normal, anything. God has to intervene. God has to do something to bring people to their knees, kind of a miracle, right? Um, Do I believe that that occurs today? Absolutely. I know that that occurs today. I absolutely know that that occurs today. And some of you have witnessed, and I acknowledge that. But I'm also guessing that he probably doesn't perform miracles on cue on church stages when the lights dim. I'm also guessing that miracles are not intended to be a show today just as they were not intended to be a show back then. I'm guessing that miracles are not intended to authenticate religious groups just as they were not intended to authenticate religious groups back then. And I know, and this is where I get upset, I know that miracles are not intended to say, you don't have the Spirit of God because you're not watching these happen. That is an evil thing to do to anyone, and I get upset when somebody does that. No. In fact, Christ blesses the opposite, doesn't he? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. But I do believe this. God is alive and living and acting in his people. And some of you are here this morning and desperately need a miracle in your life. And I'm one of those. And somebody who I love desperately. And there is nothing I can do. And there is nothing, any, any level of intelligence, any level of arguing, any level of anything I can do to help somebody. It's beyond my control. And it takes something supernatural. And it's going to take God. Some people are out there looking for a miracle today because they want to show that God is really amongst them and God is with them, and, they, and it's a show for their church. Listen, that's exactly what the Jews were doing back here. It is no different. But there are other people looking for a miracle today because they deeply love someone and they need God to rescue. Let me tell you, God knows the heart of faith. He knows that heart And it's not only am I telling you that that's when he acts. I'm telling you something bigger than that. That's when he smiles. That's when he says, I'm amazed. Look at that faith. That person is coming to me because they know my power, my voice that spoke creation into existence, my voice that parted the sea. All I have to do is say the word. When you come to God in prayer, you could, you could think it's your effort and say, man, maybe if I pray longer or harder, maybe if I pour ashes and put sackcloth on, is it my effort? 
And then some of us think of the opposite. We think maybe it's God's effort. Is this too hard for you? Is this too difficult to you? I know this is a big request. Neither of those things are true. The truth is, it's very easy for God. Very, very easy for God. In fact, it's, that's not even the right word. But we're told this in Hebrews eleven six. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. Bring that smile to his face. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. James 4 similarly says, when you ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives. And he goes on and he says this, so that you can spend what you get on yourselves. And so this whole idea of the centurion and what's taking place here is actually kind of a dark message to the Jews of the time. Because Jesus had said this formerly. He, he said, listen, I, 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 I can't do these miracles in this place because you just want to see a show. You just want to authenticate yourselves or you just want to show you know, no concern for me. But how about this? Every miracle we've seen so far, Jesus raises somebody from the dead. Jesus opens the eyes of the blind. Jesus cures a man of leprosy. Have you noticed that in most of these stories, not one person ever in these stories, so far in Luke, has celebrated that this person was just healed. The attention is always put on, well, Jesus, I can't believe you did this on the Sabbath. Jesus, I'm watching to see if you're going to do a miracle. They never really turn and celebrate the healing that just took place. Um, and that's what I want to pray for. I was so touched. Um, I'm going to say a prayer for us in just a minute. But I was so touched when I looked at our um, bulletin this week. And I was thinking about the prayer requests that we're lifting up before God on your bulletin. And you might just look at this. I'm just going to kind of lift this up before God. Uh, David did something similar in a class not long ago. But Mary, Mary is not here this morning. Mary has been a very good friend. And um, I haven't been out there as much recently. But we've enjoyed a lot of tea together and things like that. Some of you are caring for Mary in ways that are just beautiful to me. She has gone through a lot of pain. Um, I, I think she shattered her shoulder a couple of years ago because she was running to the store because she desperately needed Reese's Pieces. Is that right? When she got back, I had a bowl full of Reese's Pieces on her table. I said, please, I'll, I'll just supply the Reese's Pieces. But with all the pain she's been through, this was her prayer request. I prayed to God to lend me a heart of replete with gratitude. I'm very grateful for prayers offered for my well-being. The healing continues. And I thought, all of this, and what is her prayer before God? God, give me a heart of gratitude. That is beautiful to me. Some of the prayer requests we're lifting up before God. John Higgins, Mindy Kerr and her daughter Marley, Steve, Joanne Morthal, Lorraine Oliphant, Howard Shackelford, Becky Sanchez, Wade Sevilla, Deb Steinhoff, Lucy Stain, 
Mary, Gene Wells, and Bill Williams. A lot of times our prayer requests, we put them into bulletins. Sometimes just become a list, but the thing is, in a church and a family like this, these are names of people you love dearly. And the truth is, a lot of times, um, it is true, and it was mentioned in class this morning, when a prayer request is brought forward, sometimes it's really just an announcement. And I pray that it will never become that to us, that we will combine it with faith. And that out of love and selflessness and true knowledge of the power of God, who in just one word can transform reality. Um... I'm begging that God will teach us how to pray like that. Not just so we would... Because the point isn't to witness miracles. It's not. The point is that we would witness the healing that takes place through those miracles. And maybe even greater than that, the point is to make God smile and look down on us and say, I'm amazed of that kind of faith. Um, uh, Father, I just want to come before you and, and I want to lift up these names before you. I want to lift up the family that's here. And I pray, God, that um, you would remind us of the reality of miracles in this world, not so we can celebrate miracles um, as though it's some sort of magic show. But that God that we can celebrate you as a very real God that loves and intercedes for his people. And I want to lift up, Father, those that are close to our heart, some of those names that I just listed and some of those people that are on our hearts this morning. And I pray, God, that you would robe us with and selflessness. Um, I beg of you, Father, that you would intercede. Um... Father, that some of us that have lost, and I know I have so many times, God, you know my heart. It's before you, it's an open door. Have lost faith in the power of, I guess, prayer, but more importantly, the power of you. And, and I ask God that we would pray not because it's a good, healthy thing to do like exercise, I pray, God, that you would teach us to pray because you're so real. You're so powerful. You're so loving. And with just a word, you can change so much reality. I want to pray for those people that are in this room right now, God, and just those people, whatever reason you've brought us together, maybe a certain person that you've brought in this room, that maybe his thought religion is a joke. That you are uh, just a just an antiquated idea, and I pray God that you would breathe reality into every heart that's here, that you would remind us we are a people living continually in your presence. We can't escape you. We don't want to escape you, and I just praise you for the blessing of living in the tabernacle with you. Um, bless the faith that is in this room this morning. And I pray, God, that this church, for the purest of reasons, would witness some miracles. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's worship our God.